Section thirty two of the Life of Samuel Johnson, volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Monday, April the nineteenth, he called on me with Mrs. Williams in Mr. Strawn's coach and carried me out to dine with Mr. Elphinstone at his academy at Kensington. A printer having acquired a fortune sufficient to keep his coach was a good topic for the credit of literature. Footnote. Cave set up his coach about thirty years earlier. Dr. Franklin memoirs wrote to Mr. Strawn in 1784, I remember your observing once to me as we sat together in the House of Commons that no two journeymen printers within your knowledge had met with such success in the world as ourselves. You were then at the head of your profession, and soon afterwards became a member of Parliament. I was an agent for a few provinces, and now act for them all. End of footnote. Mrs. Williams said that another printer, Mr. Hamilton, had not waited so long as Mr. Strawn, but had kept his coach several years sooner. Footnote. Hamilton made a large fortune out of Smollett's history, Forster's goldsmith. He was also the proprietor of the Critical Review. End of footnote. Johnson. He was in the right. Life is short. The sooner a man begins to enjoy his wealth, the better. Mr. Elphinstone talked of a new book that was much admired, and asked Dr. Johnson if he had read it. Johnson. I have looked into it. What? said Elphinstone. Have you not read it through? Johnson, offended at being thus pressed, and so obliged to own his cursory mode of reading, answered tartly, No, sir, do you read books through? He this day again defended duelling. Footnote. Horace Walpole wrote of the year 1773, The rage of duelling had of late much revived, especially in Ireland, and many attempts were made in print and on the stage to curb so horrid and absurd a practice. Journal of the Reign of George III. Footnote. He this day again defended duelling and put his argument upon what I have ever thought the most solid basis, that if public war be allowed to be consistent with morality, private war must be equally so. Indeed, we may observe what strained arguments are used to reconcile war with the Christian religion. But in my opinion, it is exceedingly clear that dueling, having better reasons for its barbarous violence, is more justifiable than war, in which thousands go forth without any cause of personal quarrel and massacre each other. On Wednesday, April the 21st, I dined with him at Mr. Thrale's. A gentleman attacked Garrick for being vain, footnote, very likely Boswell. See post April the 10th, 1778, where he says, I slyly introduced Mr. Garrick's fame and his assuming the airs of a great man. End of footnote. Johnson. No wonder, sir, that he is vain. A man who is perpetually flattered in every mode that can be conceived. So many bellows have blown the fire that one wonders he has not by this time become a cinder. Boswell. 
and such bellows too lord mansfield with his cheeks like to burst lord chatham like an aeolus i have read such notes from them to him as were enough to turn his head Footnote. in the garrick correspondence up to this date there is no letter from lord mansfield which answers boswell's descriptions to lord chatham garrick addressed some verses from mount edgecombe chatham on april the third seventeen seventy two sent verses in return and wrote you have kindly settled upon me a lasting species of property i never dreamed of in that enchanting place a far more able conveyancer than any in chancery land Ibid footnote. johnson true when he whom everybody else flatters flatters me i then am truly happy mrs thrale the sentiment is in congreve i think johnson yes madam in the way of the world if there's delight in love tis when i see that heart which others bleed for bleed for me footnote that i alone the conquest prize when i insult a rival's eyes if there's etc act three scene twelve and footnote no sir i should not be surprised though garrick chained the ocean and lashed the winds Possible. should it not be sir lashed the ocean and chained the winds johnson no sir recollect the original in corum atque oerum solitus avire flagelis barbarus aeolio numquam hoc in cacre passos ipsum compedibus qui vincerat enosigaium but how did he return this haughty brave who whipped the winds and made the sea his slave though neptune took unkindly to be bound and oerus never such hard usage found in his aeolian prison underground dryden juvenile satire ten line one eighty and footnote this does very well when both the winds and the sea are personified and mentioned by their mythological names as in juvenile but when they are mentioned in plain language the application of the epithets suggested by me is the most obvious and accordingly my friend himself in his imitation of the passage which describes xerxes has the waves he lashes and enchains the wind the modes of living in different countries and the various views with which men travel in quest of new scenes having been talked of a learned gentleman who holds a considerable office in the law expatiated on the happiness of a savage life Footnote. most likely mr pepys a master in chancery whom johnson more than once roughly attacked at streatham and mentioned an instance of an officer who had actually lived for some time in the wilds of america of whom when in that state he quoted this reflection with an air of admiration as if it had been deeply philosophical here am i free and unrestrained amidst the rude magnificence of nature with this indian woman by my side and this gun with which i can procure food when i want it what more can be desired for human happiness it did not require much sagacity to foresee that such a sentiment would not be permitted to pass without due animal aversion johnson 
do not allow yourself so to be imposed upon by such gross absurdity it is sad stuff it is brutish if a bull could speak he might as well exclaim here am i with this cow and this grass what being can enjoy greater felicity we talked of the melancholy end of a gentleman who had destroyed himself Footnote. january the fifth seventeen seventy two poor mr fitzherbert hanged himself on wednesday he went to see the convicts executed that morning and from thence in his boots to his son having sent his groom out of the way at three his son said sir you are to dine at mr buller's it is time for you to go home and dress he went to his own stable and hanged himself with a bridle they say his circumstances were in great disorder horace walpole's letters end of footnote johnson it was owing to imaginary difficulties in his affairs which had he talked with any friend would soon have vanished Boswell. do you think sir that all who commit suicide are mad johnson sir they are often not universally disordered in their intellects but one passion presses so upon them that they yield to it and commit suicide as a passionate man will stab another he added i have often thought that after a man has taken the resolution to kill himself it is not courage in him to do anything however desperate because he has nothing to fear goldsmith i don't see that johnson nay but my dear sir why should not you see what every one else sees goldsmith it is for fear of something that he has resolved to kill himself and will not that timid disposition restrain him johnson it does not signify that the fear of something made him resolve it is upon the state of his mind after the resolution is taken that i argue suppose a man either from fear pride or conscience or whatever motive has resolved to kill himself when once the resolution is taken he has nothing to fear he may then go and take the king of prussia by the nose at the head of his army he cannot fear the rack who has resolved to kill himself when eustace budgel footnote, boswell in his hebrides august the eighteenth seventeen seventy three says that budgel was accused of forging a will in square brackets dr tyndall's and sunk himself in the thames before the trial of its authenticity came on pope speaking of himself says that he let budgel charge low grub street on his quill and write whatever he pleased except his will prologue to the satires one line three seven eight budgel drowned himself on may the fourth seventeen thirty seven more than two years after the publication of this prologue gentleman's magazine perhaps the verse is an interpolation in a later edition End of footnote. when eustace budger was walking down to the thames determined to drown himself he might if he pleased without any apprehension of danger have turned aside and first set fire to st james's palace on tuesday april the twenty seventh mr beauclerc and i called on him in the morning as we walked up johnson's court i said 
I have a veneration for this court, and was glad to find that Beauclerc had the same reverential enthusiasm. We found him alone. We talked of Mr. Andrew Stewart's elegant and plausible letters to Lord Mansfield, a copy of which had been sent by the author to Dr. Johnson, footnote, on the Douglas cause, end of footnote. Johnson, they have not answered the end. They have not been talked of. I have never heard of them. This is owing to their not being sold. People seldom read a book which is given to them, and few are given. The way to spread a work is to sell it at a low price. No man will send to buy a thing that costs even sixpence without an intention to read it. Possible. May it not be doubted, so whether it be proper to publish letters arraigning the ultimate decision of an important cause by the supreme judicature of the nation? Johnson. No, sir, I do not think it was wrong to publish these letters. If they are thought to do harm, why not answer them? But they will do no harm. If Mr. Douglas be indeed the son of Lady Jane, he cannot be hurt. If he be not her son, and yet has the great estate of the family of Douglas, he may well submit to have a pamphlet against him by Andrew Stewart. So I think such a publication does good, as it does good to show us the possibilities of human life. And so you will not say that the Douglas cause was a cause of easy decision, when it divided your court as much as it could do to be determined at all. When your judges were seven and seven, the casting vote of the president must be given on one side or other, no matter, for my argument, on which, one or the other must be taken, as when I am to move there is no matter which leg I move first. And then, sir, it was otherwise determined here. No, sir, a more dubious determination of any question cannot be imagined. Footnote. I regretted that Dr. Johnson never took the trouble to study a question which interested nations. He would not even read a pamphlet which I wrote upon it, entitled The Essence of the Douglas Cause, which, I have reason to flatter myself, had considerable effect in favour of Mr. Douglas, of whose legitimate filiation I was then, and am still, firmly convinced. Let me add that no fact can be more respectably ascertained than by the judgment of the most august tribunal in the world, a judgment in which Lord Mansfield and Lord Camden united in 1769, and for which only five of a numerous body entered a protest. Boswell. Boswell, in his Hebrides, records on October the 26, 1773, Dr. Johnson roused my zeal so much that I took the liberty to tell him that he knew nothing of the, in square brackets, Douglas, cause. Lord Shelburne says, I conceived such a prejudice upon the sight of the present Lord Douglas's face and figure that I could not allow myself to vote in this cause. If ever I saw a Frenchman, he is one. Fitzmaurice's Shelburne. Hume was struck, he writes, with a very sensible indignation at the decision. The cause, though not in the least intricate, is so complicated that it never will be reviewed by the public, 
who were besides perfectly pleased with the sentence being swayed by compassion and a few popular topics to one who understands the cause as i do nothing could appear more scandalous than the pleadings of the two law lords j h burton's hume in campbell's chancellors an account is given of a duel between stuart and thurlow that arose out of this suit End of footnote. he said goldsmith should not be forever attempting to shine in conversation he has not temper for it he is so much mortified when he fails so a game of jokes is composed partly of skill partly of chance a man may be beat at times by one who has not the tenth part of his wit now goldsmith's putting himself against another is like a man laying a hundred to one who cannot spare the hundred it is not worth a man's while a man should not lay a hundred to one unless he can easily spare it though he has a hundred chances for him he can get but a guinea and he may lose a hundred goldsmith is in this state when he contends if he gets the better it is very little addition to a man of his literary reputation if he does not get the better he is miserably vexed johnson's own superlative powers of wit set him above any risk of such uneasiness garrick had remarked to me of him a few days before rabelais and all other wits are nothing compared with him you may be diverted by them but johnson gives you a forcible hug and shakes laughter out of you whether you will or no goldsmith however was often very fortunate in his witty contests even when he entered the lists with johnson himself sir joshua reynolds was in company with them one day when goldsmith said that he thought he could write a good fable mentioned the simplicity which that kind of composition requires and observed that in most fables the animals introduced seldom talk in character for instance said he the fable of the little fishes who saw birds fly over their heads and envying them petitioned jupiter to be changed into birds the skill continued he consists in making them talk like little fishes while he indulged himself in this fanciful reverie he observed johnson shaking his sides and laughing upon which he smartly proceeded why dr johnson this is not so easy as you seem to think for if you were to make little fishes talk they would talk like whales johnson though remarkable for his great variety of composition never exercised his talents in fable except we allow his beautiful tale published in mrs williams's miscellanies to be of that species footnote the fountains works volume nine page one seventy six end of footnote i have however found among his manuscript collections the following sketch of one glow-worm lying in the garden saw a candle in a neighbouring palace and complained of the littleness of his own light another observed wait a little soon dark have outlasted in square brackets greek pole many of these glaring lights which are only brighter as they haste to nothing footnote 
it has already been observed that one of his first essays was a Latin poem on a glowworm, but whether it be anywhere extant has not been ascertained. Malone. End of footnote. End of section thirty two.